On the night before he suffered and died, our divine Savior took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take ye, and eat ye all of this, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In like manner, after they had eaten, he took the cup, blessed it, gave it to them, saying, Take ye and drink ye all of this. For this cup, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which will be shed for you. Do this in memory of me. With these words, our blessed Lord instituted the Eucharist, which is a sacrament as well as a sacrifice, and the priesthood, which will perpetuate the Eucharist until the end of time. A sacrifice is a gift that man gives to Almighty God. The fathers at the Council of Trent stated that it is in the nature of man to offer God sacrifice. We see from the book of Genesis that at the very dawn of creation, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, offered to Almighty God the first fruits of the harvest as well as the sacrifice of a yearling sheep. We recognize through history that men, even though they have gone astray from the commands of Almighty God, nevertheless retain the practice of offering sacrifice. The great classic works of Rome and of Greece, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, are filled with examples of bloody as well as unbloody sacrifices. Today, if you were to travel to parts of primitive Africa as well as Asia, you would find that among pagan people, Sacrifices, both bloody and unbloody, are still offered. This practice corroborates what the fathers at Trent said, namely, that it is in the nature of man to offer sacrifice. We know further that in the Old Testament, the Lord God decreed that certain sacrifices be offered by his people, the Jewish people. And these sacrifices were foreshadowings of the great sacrifice of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which is particularly striking, is the sacrifice of the yearling sheep which was commanded by Almighty God on the eve that the Jewish people or the Hebrew people as they were known departed from the land of bondage, the land of Egypt.
they were to offer a yearling sheep without, without spot, consume all of its flesh, and sprinkle the doorpost of their homes with its blood, so that the angel of death, seeing the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, would pass over the Jewish dwellings and not disturb a hair of the head of the firstborn. But he would take the firstborn of the Egyptian children as well as their animals. Now that was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ whose blood would redeem the whole world. Christ succeeded where all others failed. Apparently, the idea behind sacrifice, an idea retained even among pagan people, was to adore God, to thank him for the blessings he had showered upon them, to ask him for favors, and most mysteriously, to acknowledge that they had offended God and through that sacrifice, they wished to atone for their offense. Now on the night before, he offered himself on the gibbet of the cross. Our divine savior changed bread and wine into his body and blood and gave the command to the apostles and through them to us, his people, do this in memory of me. It is because it is in the nature of man to offer sacrifice that Christ came to our assistance to assure that the sacrifice we would offer would be a sacrifice that was most pleasing to Almighty God, that would fulfill those four ends I just mentioned to you. Adoration, thanksgiving, petition, and amendment. On the cross, Christ gained all merit, but he distributed none. In the Mass, Christ gains no merit, for that has already been secured by Calvary. However, he distributes as many graces as we can receive. If you go to the ocean with a glass or a thimble or a bucket, that's all the water you can acquire. It's not the fault of the ocean. It's the fault of the instrument that you use. If we come to the Eucharist with our hearts open, we can receive more graces from the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We have to keep in mind the importance of the Eucharistic sacrifice. For after all, the church obliges us to receive the Eucharist once 
during the year, once during the time of the Easter time, that is, from the first Sunday of Lent up until Pentecost Sunday. But the church insists that we attend Mass every Sunday and on holy days of obligation because she is ever mindful of the words of her divine Savior. Do this in memory of me. The Mass and Calvary are one and the same because in a sacrifice there must be a priest and there must be a victim. And in the sacrifice on Calvary, the priest was our Lord Jesus Christ and the victim, the same Lord Jesus Christ. So it is in the Mass. Christ is the one who offers himself under the appearance of bread and wine. The priest is his instrument, most necessary, yes, but it is Christ himself who is the author of each and every one of the sacraments. In particular, I would say the greatest of the sacraments, the Eucharist. You know that a sacrament is a sign instituted by Christ to give grace. What is fundamental in that definition is the category of sign. A sign is something that stands for something else or represents something else. Some signs are natural and others are man-made. Smoke is a natural sign of fire. Tears, a natural sign of sadness. A footprint is a natural sign that a man or an animal has passed by. But there is a wide multiplicity of signs that were created by men. The flag with the 50 stars and the 13 stripes represents one country in the world, the United States of America. The traffic signal, when it is red, indicates to the driver that he should stop. When it is green, that he should proceed. We look at football games, basketball games, baseball games, and we see that umpires and referees give signs. Catchers give signs to the pitchers, yes. And the language, the language is a system of signs. If we were in a Spanish Catholic church, we would find the same things that we find here. But there would be different names for the tabernacle, different names for the pews, different names for the altar. Because their system of signs in Spanish 
is different from ours in English. Now, the sacrament is in the nature of a sign or the category of a sign. But it's not a natural sign, nor is it one made by any ordinary man. The sacrament was established by Christ, who is the Son of God. That separates it from all other signs. But there's something more. The sacrament causes what it signifies. Smoke does not cause fire. The flash, the red light at a traffic signal does not cause a car to stop. Many cars have gone through red lights. But when the priest pours water on the head of a child and says the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, those words cause something in the child that we cannot see. We can see only the sign. What happens in the soul of the child is that original sin is washed away and the new life of sanctifying grace comes into the soul of the child for the first time. Christ, as I told you last night, established the sacramental system, seven signs, each one of which gives us sanctifying grace, but it gives us sanctifying grace in a different way. Now, of all those sacraments, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us the greatest is the Eucharist. He gives his reasons. There is one reason I will point out to you, or I should say, I call your attention to. Baptism takes place when someone is baptized. The priest pours the water, says the words. Confession takes place also in an action. A penitent mentions his sins to the priest, and the priest pronounces the words of absolution. Marriage, there is an exchange of vows, and that constitutes the sacrament. But what happens in the Eucharist? The Eucharist exists before anyone receives it. At Mass, when the priest says the words of consecration, Christ is present under the appearance of bread, under the appearance of wine, even though no one yet has received the Eucharist. Now Aquinas points out to us that the Eucharist is the greatest of the sacraments because the Eucharist is Christ himself. Baptism is not Christ himself, nor is any of the other sacraments. All of these transmit to us the graces won by our Lord on Calvary for us. Only the Eucharist, however, is Christ himself. Secondly, says the great Thomas Aquinas, 
all of the other sacraments point to the Eucharist. Why is it that one is baptized? One is baptized so that he may be able to receive the Eucharist. Why do we have the sacrament of penance? So that mortal sin may be removed and we can once again receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. And the priesthood, the priesthood and the Eucharist are co-relative. You cannot think of one without the other. For the Eucharist is a sacrifice, and the priest is the one who offers that Eucharistic sacrifice. St. Thomas mentions the other sacraments and their reflection, or rather relationship, to the Eucharist. For the Eucharist represents the church. St. Paul mentions how many grains of wheat go to the formation of the bread. And we, though many, are made one in Christ. When a man and woman join together, St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that they represent the union of Christ and the church. The same thing that the Eucharist itself represents for us. The greatest of all of the sacraments is the sacrament of the Eucharist. Because Christ is truly present. We think now of St. John's Gospel, chapter 6, to refresh your memories. Chapter 6 of St. John's Gospel begins with our Lord feeding 5,000 with two loaves and five fish. Afterwards, the people who saw this marvelous miracle want to crown Christ as their king. He flees because they do not understand that his kingdom is not of this world. Afterwards, he walks across the lake of Tiberias. And the next day, he meets with many of the Jews who ate of the loaves and the fish. They ask him, how did he get there? He doesn't tell them. He says, you seek me because you ate the loaves and the fish. What you should seek is a bread that will never fail, that will give you eternal life. The dialogue begins. And after a while, our Lord proclaims, I myself am the bread of life. He goes on. What is the bread that I will give? It is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews understand him. Some of them rebel. How can this man give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. Christ responds, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have my life in you. The man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. These words are most illuminating. 
The Jews understood perfectly what Christ was saying. If they had misrepresented him, he had the perfect opportunity to straighten them out. He did not. He insisted three times. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have my life in you. The man who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. There were other times, and in these other times, we can also cite St. John's Gospel. Times when people misunderstood our Lord, and he corrected them. For example... Nicodemus went to see our Lord at night. He confesses that Christ must come from God, for no one can do the signs that he performs unless God were with him. Christ then speaks about eternal life, that a man must be born again to enter into eternal life. Not understanding, Nicodemus says, probably sarcastically, can an old man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Christ corrects it. A man must be born again of water and of the Holy Spirit. Now contrast our Lord's response to Nicodemus in chapter 4 of St. John with what he says to the Jews in chapter 6. He tells them, yes, you understand perfectly well what I am saying. I insist upon it. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have my life in you. We live in a Christian society, but it is a Protestant country that we live in. And unfortunately, the Protestants, led by the reformers of the 16th century, denied all of the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist. This was the first time that such a great heresy had broken out. In the early days of the church, there were many many heresies directed against Christ, against the Trinity. It was only about the year 1000 that a theologian named Berengarius had doubts about the real presence. He mentioned these, but Berengarius was a theologian. He had very little influence upon ordinary people. In fact, he did retract his statement on the Eucharist, at least initially. What he said about the Eucharist had no widespread influence. That was left for five centuries later when Martin Luther, joined by Zwingli and Calvin, denied the real presence. What is interesting is they differ among themselves. Zwingli's teaching on the Eucharist Calvin's teaching and Luther's teaching are united in this that they deny the real presence. 
but they differed drastically among themselves. As I mentioned to you last night, polls have been taken which reveal that Catholic people, even those who receive the Eucharist frequently, identify one of the Protestant theories about the Eucharist for their own response. Not accepting the Catholic Church's teaching as enshrined in the Council of Trent. Christ said, this is my body, this is my blood. Now when our Lord said this, the apostles could see that he was holding in his hand something that looked like bread. And later when they received it, it tasted like bread. It felt like bread. How could it be the body and blood of Christ? For this, we have to understand something about reality. A great philosopher, a pagan, named Aristotle, was able to find out the obvious, the difference between what he called substance and accident. These words have come into our language so that ordinary people use them. They say it's accidentally different, but it's really substantially the same. What is meant by substance and accident? By substance, Aristotle mentions, something that exists in itself. Can I give you an example? You and I, human beings, we exist in ourselves. Cows, animals, plants, might say various rocks. Are there other things that do not exist in themselves, but exist in substances? Yes. Color. Did you ever see red by itself? Would you ever go into a store and say, I would like to buy five pounds of red? The proprietor would think there's something wrong with your mind. There are wagons that are red. There are animals that they are red. But there's nothing red in itself. A shape. There's something that is shaped, but you don't find shape by itself. Color, taste, weight, and shape. These things are called accidents. So when our Lord says, this is my body, a number of miracles, too, occur. One miracle is this, that the substance, whatever it is that makes bread to be bread, and whatever it is that makes wine to be wine, is no longer present, but rather the substance of Christ's body. And because Christ is a living body, his blood is also present. So is his soul, and so is his divinity. The difference between substance and accident. Secondly, that which I receive 
Looks like bread, feels like bread, tastes like bread. Yes. And that too is a miracle. Because accidents exist in substances. These accidents pertain to bread, but bread is no longer present. So the accidents are kept in existence without adhering to bread, because bread is no longer present, and they do not adhere to Christ's substance. His substance, you might say, stands under the bread. Well, I'm talking a little philosophic. But you and I know that if we see a tree, the tree is not the same as the leaves, the bark, the fruit. There's something that underlies all of this. And that is what we mean by the substance of the tree. Or the substance of bread. In other words, we cannot know the substance of anything through our senses. It's something that we recognize because we have an intellect. And since Christ, who cannot deceive us, tells us, this is my body. This is the chalice of my blood, I believe. I believe not because I can see, not because I can reason to it. I take it on the word of God who cannot deceive me. He does not tell me a lie because I know there is a difference between substance and accidents. It is obvious that the accidents of, pre of bread are present, but the substance of bread, that has been changed. St. Thomas, whom I've quoted a number of times, was a great poet. And in one of his Eucharistic hymns, he says, Visus tactus gustus, Inte falitur, sed auditu solo, tuto creditur. Credo quidquid dixit dei filius, nil hoc veritatis, verbo verius. Aquinas wrote in Latin. The lines rhyme in Latin. The meaning is this. When it comes to the Eucharist, all of our senses except one fail us. The Eucharist looks like bread, feels like bread, tastes like bread. It is not bread. Only one sense can we trust. Our sense of hearing. For we hear the voice of the Son of God who tells us, This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. The Eucharist is called Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith. The only way you and I can know that Christ is present under the appearance of bread and wine is through the faith that we have received. St. Thomas points out that the angels and also the saints in paradise can recognize the truth that Christ is present in the Eucharist. But the only way in which man can know this is through the gift of faith. 
Non-Catholic people can come into a Catholic church not recognizing that Jesus, their Savior, is present under the appearance of bread in the tabernacle. But we can know that because God in his goodness has made it known to us through the faith he has bestowed upon us. The early fathers of the church looked upon the Eucharist as our manna. The Jewish people, or rather the Hebrews, as they were called at that time, after they left the land of bondage Egypt, made their way through the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. They could not plow, they could not hunt, and so God fed them with the mysterious bread from heaven, which was called manna. And the purpose of this bread was to keep them alive until they reached the promised land. And so, the early fathers said, the Eucharist is our manna. For the purpose of the Eucharist is to keep us alive until we reach the promised land, not of Palestine, but of heaven, where God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of the just, and death will be no more. The priest, in the traditional rite, when he gives communion, says words. Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, custodiat animam tuam in vitam eternam. And that brings out the idea of manna. May the body of the Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto eternal life. This great gift is given to us to support us through the tiles of this life so that we may at length reach the purpose for which we were made, the beatific vision. St. Augustine speaks about a, <clears throat> the great mystery of assimilation, natural mystery. We can take things outside of ourselves, corn, fruit, bread, milk, potatoes, consume them, and they're transformed. They become part of us. This is called assimilation. Augustine says, when it comes to the Eucharist, it is not Christ who becomes part of me. It's the reverse. It is I who become more and more like Christ Jesus. Now, last night, when I was instructing you on making progress in your interior life, I mentioned that if you are aware of some fault that you have, you should follow the example of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and when you arise in the morning, resolve that you will guard yourself against falling into the temptation, succumbing to that sin. When you consider that Christ is present in the Eucharist, 
the one who loves you and died on the cross for you, you have an added incentive to overcome your vices. Many people, unfortunately, do nothing about their transgressions. That's just the way I am. No. If we are serious, we will try to remove what is displeasing to our Lord. And we know that sin displeases him. When Christ was on this earth, he hid his divinity. He spoke with the accent of a man from Galilee. But in the Eucharist, it is not only his divinity that lies hidden, but his humanity as well. Nevertheless, each and every one of us must say with St. Thomas the Apostle, my Lord and my God. When we receive the Eucharist, we may be overcome with weariness. We may be distracted, but we should not succumb. We should profess that we believe that our Lord is truly present. And we should try to make some reparation to the sacred heart of Jesus for all the indignities he has received since the institution of the Eucharist. That, by the way, was the motivation for the feast of the sacred heart. You know that Christ appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and showed her his heart. On one occasion, the heart was surrounded by a crown of thorns, and he said to her, Behold this heart that has so loved man that it has exhausted itself, denying them nothing. And yet in return, I receive nothing but coldness, indifference, and sacrilege. I mentioned in passing last night that it is well known, even in the Vatican, that sacrilegious communions are widespread. We who love Christ should make some reparation to his sacred heart. We can do so, of course, by receiving communion on the first Friday, but also whenever it is that we receive communion, we can offer ourselves to him in an attempt to make up for the coldness, the indifference, the sacrilege that he has suffered since the institution of the Holy Eucharist. God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.